All right, well, I am so glad to see you here. Thanks for joining us this weekend. Can I see a raise of hands of people who were here last week? I know a lot of you were traveling or other. Oh my goodness, you guys came back. You guys came back. Thank you for coming back. Okay, now if you weren't with us last week, Greg Moore, our pastor, our executive pastor, hinted at it. This is a little bit different series where we are engaging not only our hearts, but also our minds. And so buckle up because we've got some really life-changing stuff to learn today. It's probably a sermon you won't hear anywhere else. It's a little bit different, okay? But I want to start by telling you about my three kids. Many of you uh, know Jack and Zoe and Evie, our three little ones. I'll tell you a silly story, funny, cute story from this last week, a real story that you parents and grandparents can identify with. Mel and I had a date night, so we had one of our usual babysitters come over, and when the babysitter arrived, we were very clear to our three kiddos, hey, when we get home, you guys will be asleep in bed, and we're going to ask the babysitter three questions. Uh, did each of them obey? Were they respectful? And did they go to bed on time? And based on her answer to those questions, we'll determine for the upcoming weekend how much device time you get. That's their favorite carrot is device time. So Mel and I get back from the date, and we ask the babysitter, how did it go? Now, all parties shall remain anonymous here, so I'm not going to use any names, okay? But she said, well, uh, two of the three did disobey pretty, you know, directly, and I had a little bit of an issue there, but ultimately they were respectful. They went to bed on time. Okay, so kids wake up the next morning, and Mel and I have a little conversation with each of them individually. Now, one of them right away, when we explained this, said, oh, I know it. I, I wish I could go back in time and redo it. It was, you know, I, you're right. I disobeyed. And we said, okay, we want you to, you know, do some things to think on it and think what will you do different next time. Well, the other child who had disobeyed said, uh, it's not my fault. That's the babysitter's fault. <laughs> Classic human nature, right? And so I had a long talk that morning with, with that child of trying to um, get that child to a point of what we would call personal accountability, personal responsibility, to own their behavior and move from saying it's the babysitter's fault to saying, I understand. Because one of the things we're after as Christian parents in our parenting is not just behavior modification, but heart transformation. We want our little ones to understand the heart that drove the behavior to acknowledge the heart and ultimately to look to Jesus to help reshape their heart. Well, long talk with that one and the heart was not there. So got that, got that one to school and actually spent that day between preparing the message, kind of praying, God, please move the heart, only you can do that. And thankfully that night, that one came full circle and said, I, I get it, it was me, I disobeyed, that's why I'm in trouble, it's not the babysitter's fault, I do wanna learn from it. And I was like, yes, thank you, Lord. So the point of the whole story is this. We all have some people in our families or workplaces, don't elbow anyone, who is in their 40s or 50s or 60s, and when they do something wrong, they still act like it was never their fault. We've all got some people like that in our lives. And the thing with parenting and grandparenting is now's our chance to try to, to get personal accountability and responsibility, some of these ideas, into the minds of our little ones. Because right now it's kind of cute, but the older they get, the bigger the implications and the consequences of their choices become. And I'm well aware of this, we all are, but I'm well aware of it because of my time as an investigative reporter. There was a time when I was profiling a number of heroin addicts in Phoenix. And one of those heroin addicts was a 19-year-old girl named Mickey. 
And what's unusual or was a little unusual about Mickey is that she had grown up in a middle upper class family. Her dad was an attorney and she had a pink bedroom with a cute little bed with all her stuffed animals lined up just like my two girls do. But Mickey made choices along the way to the extent that by the time she was 19, she was living in a prostitution house, selling her body, doing anything she could to get more Mexican black tar heroin to inject into her body. Because the reality is what we believe about ourselves and how we behave has consequences. And here's what I know. Every once in a while when I see my little girls and I see their bedroom and their stuffed animals, I think of Mickey. And I know that I can't control their choices in the future. And I can't control their future. But as a dad, I want to do everything I can to set them on a path of freedom. And I know that's true of you, for the people you love. We all desire, whether it's for our kids, our spouse, a person you're dating, your grandkids, we all desire for the people we love and for ourselves that we'd be living lives of freedom. And what I mean is free from drug addiction, free from alcoholism, free from sexual addiction, free from bankruptcy, free from uh, impulsiveness or not being able to control a temper. Some people go through life and they keep losing jobs over and over again through their adult life because they can't control their impulses and they have moments where they get heated and they lose their temper and they lose that job and then they go have another one for a few years and then it happens again. We want our kids and grandkids to be free from that. We want our kids and grandkids to have the best life possible. So the question we're asking today is this, how can we ensure freedom and prosperity for the people we love? What can you do? You can't control their decisions and you can't control their future, but what can you do to best set them up for success? What can you do for the people you love to best put them on a path that leads to a life of freedom in their choices and in their family and in their future? Well, as always, when we gather here, we open the word of God to see what does God say about this? And Jesus actually answered this question directly in John chapter 8, and here's what he said. He said, if you hold to my teachings, so if you know them and do them, well, then you're really my disciples or followers. So being a follower of Jesus is more than just being baptized and saying, I'm a Christian. That's, that's a start, but it's actually following after Jesus, and none of us do it perfectly, and Jesus knows that. But the goal is to do it consistently. And Jesus says, if you hold to my teachings, if you make it your effort, if you'll fall down, but if you get back up and you keep trying to pursue my way of life, well, then you will know the truth. And this idea of know is you'll know it not only in your mind, but you'll know it in your experience. You'll experience my truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Here's what we're learning today. God's truth brings freedom. God's truth brings freedom. I think of that heroin addict, 19-year-old Mickey, and I know that as my girls and my kids go through their teen years and through their 20s and through their 30s, I won't be there on their shoulder every time a temptation comes their way. I won't be standing next to them every time a dangerous opportunity presents itself. And so the best thing I can do is get God's truth into their minds and into their hearts so that where they're in those situations, God's truth is there, and they always have that ramp out to freedom of knowing God's way. God's truth leads 
to freedom. And if I want my kids, my loved ones to experience freedom, I'll teach them to know it and to understand it. Point number one on your outline, very simply, God's truth, when obeyed, sets individuals free. And you're in a room of people where individuals who've found Christ have shared it with their relatives, and sometimes a whole family gets set free. A family that used to be defined by alcoholism or abuse or other generational vices that have been handed down, but one generation decides to place their faith in Christ and it changes the story of the family tree. God's truth can set you free. God's truth can set your family free. And we're gonna see today, even bigger than that, when a whole bunch of people like we have in this room together seek God's truth, it can actually affect an even larger group of people or a society of people if they pursue God's truth. Well, I wanna celebrate that God's ability to change lives is alive and well today. Last weekend in this room, 11 people gave their faith to Christ and were baptized over here. And can we celebrate that for a moment? Because, you know, if you're brand new with us, you might be like, why do these Christians always celebrate when people get baptized? It's kind of weird. Here's why we celebrate, because we have seen our lives transformed. And we know when we see someone come up out of those waters, they've got a new beginning and they have a chance at a whole new life. And we know what we've escaped from and been changed from. And we're so excited for the people who experience that every week here. I wanna show you a picture of Dean, who right after he was baptized, he got to baptize his wife. And here's just a little bit of a long post that Dean wrote about how God's changing his life. He wrote this on Facebook. He said, I've committed to being a disciple and to continue my walk in faith with the Lord. I decided to dedicate my life to the Lord and be baptized. Immediately following my baptism, I was able to baptize my wife, the most amazing woman in the world. This is just the beginning. Thank you, Jesus and Connection Point Christian Church. And I love this because this is what we are all about. This is what we're all about is people being set free, people having the best marriage they can possibly have, the eternal life that they can only have through Christ, and a life of freedom from addictions and vices, and even freedom from broken soundtracks that play in our minds about who we are and about shame and about guilt. Christ came to set the captives free. And it's when we read God's truth and believe it and do it that we live a life of freedom. And I know this not only from my own experience, but I've seen in my family God's power to transform an entire family. And I'll summarize the story, but my grandfather became a Christian back in the 1940s, around World War II era. He was working on a Ford assembly line in Ypsilanti, Michigan. He was not a follower of Christ. And there was a guy working on that assembly line next to him named Earl Peters. And Earl Peters started sharing with my grandpa the freedom that was available in Jesus Christ. And eventually, my grandpa placed his faith in Christ. And right away, Earl Peters told him two things. He said, hey, if you want to live the full Christian life, there's two things you need to always do. One, you've got to have a Bible and be able to read God's word for yourself. Second, no matter where you ever live, you've got to find a Bible-preaching church to be part of, and if you'll do those things, it'll transform you. My grandpa did those things, and it did transform him. And eventually, he started to share with his sister, and his brother, and his parents. And it didn't happen overnight, but over the course of about 15 years, each of his siblings and his parents, because of the change they saw in him, they became followers of Christ. 
Well, then he raised his three kids, one of whom is my dad, and he raised them to know that God's truth leads to freedom. So my dad raised me, and I'm one of four boys, and out of the four of us, I'm probably the one who wandered away the most, but God brought me back eventually, because as I went out there and saw the world as an investigative reporter, I started to realize all that stuff in the Bible about how humans work and society works, it's actually true. And I came back, and now today I'm one of four boys where each of us, you know, we're imperfect, we sin like everyone else, we struggle in our marriages like everyone else, but you know what? All four of us boys, by God's grace, we haven't ever gone through a divorce or a bankruptcy or a major alcohol or other addiction, and that's not because we're better people, it's because our dad raised us to understand God's truth and its power to set free. Why do I tell that story? It's not about me. It's one example. This room's full of examples where a whole family, uh, it gets contagious and God's truth starts setting more and more and more people free. Some of you are here and you've tasted that. Some of you are here and you think, man, I'd love that. And if that's you, be inspired. God's truth has the power to set not only you free, but also the people you care about. And if you think, well, man, I have a grown child or someone else that it could never happen, pray for their heart, gently expose them to God's truth. It does set people free. Don't give up. It doesn't happen overnight, but God's truth can change entire families. There are families in this church that the whole family tree was defined by alcoholism, and then one believer came to Christ, and God transformed the entire family, broke that chain of addiction. There are families in this church where abuse used to define the family, and God has rewritten the family story by changing a generation. There's families in this church where anger and rage and impulsiveness used to be the way that everyone in that family was, but as a person in that family trusted in Christ and was transformed, they were able to spread God's truth, and he has set entire families free. I want you to know today that no matter what you feel like a slave to, you might feel like you're a slave to something because of your choices in the past or your choices recently. Or you might feel like you're a slave to something because the family you came from and everyone in your family did that thing, is enslaved to that thing. You need to know today, there's no slavery in your life, there's no vice that God cannot set you free from, and it's his truth that sets people free. Well, in this series, we're studying the society we live in, and we're gonna move now from scripture to history, but don't, don't throw up in your mouth if you're not a history person, okay? We're gonna move from scripture to history, and we're gonna see some examples of how not only families, but entire societies or the majority of people in a society sought God's truth, the Bible, and as a result experienced freedom at a much higher level than other societies throughout history. And that's point number two on your outline. Those of us who live in the United States or in Western Europe, we don't always realize it, but we actually inherit unusual freedom and we inherit unusual wealth because many in our society pursued God's truth. Just like this works for individuals and for families, this works for groups of people. And if you open up your notes or if you're watching online, you can look at the notes. You can click beside me or below me. And in the middle of the notes, you're going to see this tree image. It's kind of a geometric tree. And this is a visual to give you a visual of what I'm gonna explain for the next few minutes, 
And I'm not making this up. I didn't get this off of a social media post. This is based on legitimate history that you can look up and double check for yourself. But starting about a thousand years ago, there was a Christian church that started one of the first universities called Oxford. And you see Oxford down here. The idea is that God's word is like a seed. And when you plant God's word as a seed in your life, it leads to freedom. When you plant God's word as a seed in your family, it leads to freedom. And there are some societies, there are no perfect societies, just like there are no perfect families, but there are some societies that for hundreds of years did strive towards God's word, imperfectly but consistently. And what we experience today is the benefits of these fruits at the top of the tree, things like the scientific revolution. So we take for granted that we have light bulbs and electricity and batteries, We take for granted that we have cars and and we can fly on airplanes. Those things all wouldn't have happened without the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution, we can measure, we can trace back in history, it came from one specific area, an area of Christian universities that were training people like Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal and Johannes Kepler, who were all devout Christians. The same is true of medicine. Uh, If we were born 200 years ago, half of us in this room wouldn't be here because of plagues and diseases that commonly would wipe out large swaths of the population, but a thing came along called the vaccine. The vaccine didn't just evolve and come out of nowhere. It was discovered and invented by a guy named Edward Jenner, who was a devout Christian, who was trained at a Christian university. We have modern medicine and modern hospitals that we're going to see trace back to a society that was pursuing the truth of God's word. So I'm not here talking about America specifically, though this will overlap with America, but this predates the United States of America by many hundred years, okay? The point is that there were these Christians who started institutions like Oxford University, which would give birth to Cambridge University, which would give birth to Harvard University, and these Christian universities, all started by Christians, And their graduates brought about things like Western democracy, modern education, social literacy, the fact that we can all read, the end of slavery, the abolition of slavery, the scientific revolution, and much, much more. These are the fruits, but they come from roots of people who sought God's truth and God's way of life. I don't know if you've ever been to a country in Africa or if you've been to India or China, if you've never experienced a culture that has never had major Christian influence, it's hard to even describe how different it is. But there are things we take for granted like paved roads and courthouses and laws and rights that are not common throughout world history and really what we live in is unusual. And what I wanna show you is that these things came about not from perfect people, but from people who pursued the word of God as their truth standard. I told you guys last week about some orange trees I had in my backyard in California. And I didn't plant the trees. I never watered the trees. I completely neglected the trees. But they were so healthy that they just kept producing oranges and the oranges were delicious. And I got to eat that fruit even though I never planted the roots or cared for the trees. And what we're gonna see today is that um, our generations have inherited orchards, massive orchards, vast land that is prosperous because of the people who came before us. But those roots were planted 
out of a pursuit of God's word, we're going to see many of those roots were. So let's start with Oxford. You've heard of it before. It's one of the oldest universities in the world. Here's Oxford's crest. It was founded about 1,000 years ago. And Oxford is one of what I call these seed universities. What we call college or university today did not happen by accident. Every major leading university and college can be traced back, uh, just like a family tree, to Oxford and a handful of these other seed universities. And here's what's unique about them. All of them started in churches. You can check it out for yourself, okay? Oxford was a church school outside of a church cathedral. And the word university actually comes from the Latin word to study all things, universita. And so these church schools that started to, uh, they existed to train clergy to read the Bible and know the Bible. They started to say, let's consider other things as well. And at the cathedral school, they created a universita. This is why if you go to any major leading university in the world, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, you'll find a church in the middle of the campus because they grew out of churches, believe it or not. That might sound impossible to you, but you can check it out for yourself. Now, here's the thing about Oxford. If you look at the crest, this is from a 1,000 years ago, okay? There's three crowns. Why? Well, because they were there to study God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Uh, we call it the Trinity. What's this book? It's a Bible. Everyone at Oxford knew it was a Bible because they had to learn Latin and Greek and Hebrew to even be admitted into the Universita to study the Bible. What's written on the Bible? Well, it's written in Latin, and what it says in Latin is, the Lord is the light of me. And in English, the Lord is my light. And every one of these students would have known from their studies that this was a Bible verse. The motto of Oxford is Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light. Maybe you've heard the old cliche, the light of learning. The light of learning is this idea that truth is like a light that guides people out of darkness and it started a thousand years ago at Oxford and other early seed universities, all of which you can track them down yourself, grew out of Christian cathedrals. Well, eventually Oxford, some of its professors would go and start another Christian universita called Cambridge. And Cambridge, a number of its students were people like Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, who actually started out as a theology student, but his professors kept saying, you're really good at math. And so Isaac Newton was, was encouraged by his professors to study math, and he ended up becoming one of the founders or fathers of what we call the scientific revolution. Scientific revolution was this unique time in history. Uh, by the way, if you don't remember Isaac Newton, you had a picture of him in, in your high school or middle school textbook with an apple. Right? He's the gravity guy, okay? But it's a lot more than gravity. It's called Newtonian physics, and it unlocked the keys to the universe. People like Albert Einstein, hundreds of years later, would look back and say, through Newton's principles, we're able to do what we can do today with modern science. Uh, Isaac Newton was one of Albert Einstein's uh, heroes who he looked up to. But here's the thing about Isaac Newton. He was not just a great scientist. He was a devout follower of Jesus, a fanatical follower of Jesus. And we have existing today thousands of pages of Isaac Newton's writings and his journals. And I wanna show you just one of them. It might not make a whole lot of sense, but I, there's a point in this picture. This top line, second to top, is actually Hebrew. And then there are other languages on here because Isaac Newton 
as a student of Trinity College at Cambridge University, knew Syriac, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, as well as a bunch of other languages, because that's how you studied the Bible. And Isaac Newton would actually go to the library at Cambridge and he'd pull out these ancient manuscripts of the Bible in all these different languages. And it sounds crazy. It sounds like something a lunatic would do, but he would take measurements from the Old Testament about the dimensions of the temple and other things. And he'd write those out in charts and he'd compare those to reality. And somehow out of that genius of a mind came Newtonian physics and the birth of the scientific revolution. And you can, you can go online today and you can read Isaac Newton's journals. About half of them have been translated. He has so many of them, about half of them haven't. But if you can go online yourself, search up Isaac Newton's journals and just type in the word Jesus. And here's what you'll find. You'll find quotes like this. Isaac Newton, writing in his personal journal, wrote this. This is life eternal, that they might know the only one true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent father of the scientific revolution, wrote that in his journal. He was quoting John chapter 17. Now, here's the thing. I'm not cherry-picking. It's not like, well, there's a lot of seed universities and Oxford's just one of them that happened to be Christian. Look it up. They were all Christian. You can look up the founders of the scientific revolution and see for yourself that 98% of them were Christians. And more than half of them didn't just go to church on the weekend, but they were like Isaac Newton, where they're journaling about their love for Jesus. Blaise Pascal, another father of the scientific revolution, was such a devoted follower of Jesus, he wrote a poem to Jesus called Pascal's Memoriam, and he actually carried it in his coat pocket everywhere he went. It was this passionate poem about his love for God and how Jesus had transformed him. Robert Boyle, if you remember from chemistry, a thing called Boyle's Law, was such a devoted follower of Jesus that he wrote a book called The Christian Virtuoso, in which he argues that it's a Christian worldview that enables the best pursuit of science. Johannes Kepler, who invented the modern telescope and eyeglasses, the list goes on and on of devoted followers of Jesus who were graduates of Christian universities who unlocked the scientific revolution. You're like, why does that matter? I don't care about history. Here's why it matters. If you remove the scientific revolution from history, we don't have electricity. We don't have light bulbs. We don't have airplanes or cars. All those things built on the scientific revolution. And just think about this. For thousands of years, people studied science in China. People studied science in Buddhist cultures and in Muslim cultures, but the scientific revolution didn't come out of any of those. For some reason, it came out of these Christian-themed cultures. Were the people perfect? No. But were they pursuing the word of God? Very clearly, if you read their writings, they were. Well, the same is true of education. I mentioned Har Oxford and Cambridge, and it was a group of graduates from Cambridge who were pursuing the word of God and they looked around, and as they could read the Word of God for themselves, they looked at their society, and they said, we want a more pure expression of Christianity. And they were so motivated. They said, a group of us, we're going to leave everything. We're going to travel on wooden ships across the Atlantic to a new world, and we're going to start a new society. They were called the Puritans. And some people came to North America to make money. But the Puritans did not come for that reason. They came to create a society for their kids where their kids could read the word of God and have complete religious freedom. They were called the Puritans. They were graduates from Cambridge, most of them. And when they arrived, they first thing they did was build their houses. Next thing they did was build a church. 
And the next thing they did was say, we need to start a Bible college so that our kids will have pastors who can read the Bible. And they raised money for that Bible college. And one of the pastors who led the charge was a guy named the Reverend John Harvard. And so they named their Bible college after him. And today it's called Harvard University, the first university in the United States. Here's a plaque that you'll see etched into the stone at Harvard University. By the way, a lot of my friends who graduated from Harvard don't know this. So if it's new to you, you're not alone, okay? But it's, it's documented clearly. You can look it up for yourself, okay? After God had carried us safely to New England and we had built our houses and built our place of worship, essentially this is a little pamphlet that they gave around to raise money for their Bible college. And they said, we realize um, we're going to die eventually, and our whole dream of coming over here and making a society where people can freely read God's word, it won't happen if we don't train the next generation of ministers is the word they use. And so let's all pool our resources and start this Bible college, which would become Harvard University. Now, here's the thing. You can look up Yale's founding charter, and in the second line, you'll see for the propagation of the Protestant Christian religion. You can look up Princeton's founding and you'll see it was founded by a group of pastors. I'm not here to talk about Ivy League colleges, but here's the thing. Whether it's IU, University of Michigan, Ohio State, Stanford University, the people who founded those colleges trace back to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, who trace back to Cambridge, who trace back to Oxford. That's why I call it a seed university. Did you know that here in Indiana, IU was started as a seminary? You can look it up. It was a seminary to train pastors in Indiana. Did you know that Butler was started as Northwest Christian University to train pastors? If you remove Christianity from world history, you don't have higher education. If you don't have higher education, you don't have engineers, you don't have doctors, you don't have scientists, you don't have attorneys. Our whole way of life we take for granted would go away. And you can go to places in the world like South Africa and places in the Muslim world where Christianity is outlawed and you can see what it looks like. It looks like the dark ages. It takes you back a thousand years if you remove Christianity. Well, it wasn't just the university. That same group of Puritans created social literacy. What does that mean? That's the fact that you and I can read today. Did you know if we were born 500 years ago that you wouldn't be able to know how to read? And neither would I. Did you know the vast majority of people ever born in human history never learned how to read? Where did reading come from? Well, here in the United States, it came from this same group of Puritans. They said, okay, we're here. We made it to this new world to create a society where our kids can live out the Bible. So we need to get ministers for them. And secondly, we need to make sure they know how to read the Bible. So they created the first public school, and they did so through legislation, a thing called the Ye Old Deluder Satan Act. <laughs> Ye Old Deluder Satan. And here was their point. Satan's a deceiver. He deceives societies and people through ideas. And so we're going to create a school so that all of our kids can read, so they can read the Bible for themselves, so they're not deluded or deceived by Satan first ever public school, social literacy came about as a result, and a first in human history, not only public education, but education for girls. If you look back in human history, and especially if you go back more than about 300 years, girls were often treated as property or as slaves. They were bought and sold into marriages, often into child marriages. In almost all societies and cultures around the globe, Christianity changed that for women in Christian societies. Now here's, forgive me a graph, okay? Here's a graph of global literacy. 
Okay, and maybe we'll put this on the side screens in a moment so you can see this starts in the 14 and 1500s. Now, a significant event happened at that time called the Protestant Reformation. And I won't unpack that today, but the point of the Protestant Reformation is Christians need to read the Bible for themselves. And so a Christian named Gutenberg invented a thing called the printing press so that people could read the Bible. And that's where really books as we know them today came from Gutenberg. Before that, it was manuscripts and libraries. A book that you could hand to someone came from Christians in the Protestant Reformation saying, we want to hand out the word of God so people can read it for themselves. Global literacy, if you look back before the Protestant Reformation, was around 10%. One in 10 people could read, even in the Western world. After the Protestant Reformation, you see this explosion upward of literacy, and it's led by nations like the Netherlands, Germany, Great Britain, and the United States. What did all those nations have in common from 1500 to 1800? Well, it's a fact of history that those were all nations that were predominantly Christian. And so if you remove Christians from world history, you remove literacy as we know it today, because this is not just a graph of literacy in Christian nations, this is literacy in the world. Actually, this yellow line is the world, and you see the world eventually catches up as the West spreads its education around the globe. So why does this stuff matter? Well, if you take Christians out of world history, you remove our ability to read, and that fundamentally takes society back a thousand years. Well, as Christians started to read the Bible for themselves, they started to look at society and they started to realize where society was out of line with God's word. And so one of those issues was slavery. The more Christians could read the Bible for themselves, the more they could look around and see, we gotta change this, we've gotta change that. And so very early as literacy started, a group of Christians in North America called the Quakers, predating the United States of America, started to write pamphlets and say, we have to end slavery and their argument was from the Bible that slavery is wrong. And the Quakers spread this message so aggressively that it made it all the way to England. By the way, you know, slavery was a global norm before this. You can look at every continent, every major civilization in world history had slavery. Egypt had slaves. Rome had slaves. Here in North America, before Europeans came, it's well documented that Native American tribes would enslave each other. Slavery was a global norm before this time. And the Quakers started looking at the Word of God and saying, we can't allow slavery in our society. And they started to spread this message. As I mentioned, it got to England. And in England, there was a young lawmaker, a guy named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was not a Christian at first. But once he became a Christian, he started to experience God's freedom in his own life. And then he started to read the word of God. And then he met some of these Quakers. And they showed him from the word of God how slavery contradicts the nature of God and the dignity that according to the Bible, all people are made in the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. And so William Wilberforce became a fanatic about ending slavery in his country and in all of the British territories. And so he wrote a book that helped to end slavery. We call it today Real Christianity. It's got a really long title, A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in this country, contrasted with real Christianity. Here's his whole point. 
He says, here's what the Bible says, England. Slavery's wrong. Here's where you are. You might not have a slave in your house, but you're making money off of slave trading companies. And if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you have to end slavery. That's why the book was called Real Christianity. Don't call yourself a Christian if you have anything to do with slavery. And William Wilberforce, for 30 years, gave his life to spread this message and eventually convinced the entire lawmaking assembly there in England to take his point of view. And they outlawed slavery in England and in all the British territories, and it became the tipping point in world history where a massive global world power outlawed slavery. And soon after that, the abolitionists in the United States, the Quakers, and many others took their argument and said, now we've got, it. we've got to end it here. They'd been arguing it for 100, more than 100 years before the Civil War, 200 years before the Civil War. But here's where I won't go too far into this. We'll go deeper some other week. But if you look up the people who ended slavery, they're called abolitionists. And if you don't believe me, you can do this on your own. You can just internet search abolition movement and, and just pick out of the top 10 abolitionist leaders who come up, pick a random two or three and start digging into their lives you'll find that they're either a pastor or they were friends with a pastor or they were the son of a pastor or the daughter of a pastor and then you can read their writings and in their writings you'll find that they're arguing from the Bible for the end of slavery. I'm not making it up, you can go check it out for yourself. The point is if you remove Christians from world history, you remove the greatest overthrow of slavery in human history. And the story continues into more modern history. Martin Luther King Jr., who uh, no one would disagree, is one of the most influential fighters for human rights in all of, of history, and especially in modern history. Martin Luther King Jr., we often forget nowadays his title was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., because he was a pastor. He was a man of the book. He was a man of God's word. And you can look at his speeches on videos for yourself, his sermons, actually, they're sermons. And you can read his writings for yourself. And if you do, you'll see what motivated the greatest fighter for human rights in modern history and maybe in all of history was the word of God. Full of quotes like this, when MLK said this, if one is truly devoted to the religion of Jesus, he will seek to rid the earth of social evils. Why? Because God's truth sets individuals free and it has the power to set families free and it has the power to set societies free. MLK another time said this, Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for those that despitefully use you. MLK was a man of God's word as he pursued God's truth. He was key in continuing to set people free. So what have we learned? Well, we've learned that Christians who have pursued God's truth, established the university, created public education and the fact that we can read, launched the scientific revolution. We haven't gone into detail on these, but it's just like the evidence I gave you on the others, the founders of Western democracy, modern medicine and the vaccine, Edward Jenner, the end of slavery in the West, the civil rights movement, and the list actually goes on and on and on. So where do we stand today? Where do we stand today? Well, I've used the analogy of the fruit on the trees. We've inherited a society that has these fruits. And they seem normal to us because we've always lived in this society. Many of us have not known life, you know, in Haiti or in Sudan or in India. 
And so it seems normal to us. But people from those countries come here and they're like, whoa, how does a society like this even come about? It doesn't happen by accident. We enjoy those fruits. Now, my assessment, this is my assessment as a researcher, as a reporter, is that what is happening in our lifetimes, and actually started shortly after World War II, is that many of our smartest people are being trained at many of our best universities to take out an ax and to chop at those roots. In other words, we don't want God in Christianity anymore, even while they're still eating the fruits. And so here's point three on your outline. Today, many free and wealthy inheritors are rejecting God's truth. And this is largely because of what they've been taught, how they've been taught to view the world. In time, this is my opinion based on principles from the word of God, the freedom and wealth that we take as normal will decline if the rejection of God's truth continues. In other words, you can start chopping at the roots of a fruit tree and still eat the fruit for a little while, but if you keep chopping at those roots, eventually the tree's gonna stop producing uh, the fruits if you're chopping at the roots. So I wanna show you here, uh, this is a, a graph I made up you guys are, thanks for putting up with me, by the way. I can tell you guys are engaged and I appreciate it. I know it's not, it's not easy, but it's so important, it's so important. This is a graph I made up of what I call the mountain of truth, the pursuit of truth. You know, and as we mentioned, starting in about 1000 AD, Oxford University founded on the pursuit of truth. If you look at the mottos of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cambridge, in almost all of them, you'll see the Latin word for truth, veritas. Or you'll see the idea of light and God's word. It was this uneven, imperfect pursuit of truth. And it was bloody and it was not pretty. And I'm not saying that any of these societies along the way were perfect because they weren't. They were messed up. But they rose above the historic norm in freedom and in life expectancy and in human rights. Why? I believe because of their pursuit of truth. Now, here's the thing, and forgive me for doing a potty joke here, okay? Maybe it'll loosen things up a little. But when you live in a family, you know how the bathroom smells after somebody uses it, right? It's kind of gross, but it's true. And, and so the thing is, when you're in a family, you know the worst stuff about the family. You know the warts. You know the underbelly. And so even if your family's a really good family, you know where it's not perfect, and my generation is inheriting this whole machinery of what used to be called Western civilization. And because we're born into it, we know where it's not perfect. And a lot of those things are very legitimate concerns where we still need to make progress. But the thing is, we've lost our perspective of how good our family is compared to other families out there. We've lost our perspective of how unique this civilization is compared to the rest of the world. And so right now, people are saying things like, we need to blow the whole thing up and start over. The thing is, other countries have tried that. We don't need to blow the whole thing up. We need to keep improving. But the improvement came from pursuing the truth standard. How do we further improve women's rights? How do we further improve racial equality and the striving toward that? We're not there yet. How do we get there? It's by continuing to pursue God's truth and what he says about human dignity and human equality. And if we throw out the standard of truth, we're not gonna get to where we wanna get as good as our motives might be. And so here's what's happened, I believe, based on my assessment, and I'll show you some evidence for this, is that in the, in the 1800s, Germany was a very, very Christian nation, 90 plus percent Christian. This was before World War II, before the Holocaust, before racism in Germany at the level of World War II. 
And a number of their smartest philosophers started to say in their highest universities, you know what? We could make a better society without God. That old Bible stuff we think is, is maybe myths and fables. Let's create a new society without God's truth. Let's do better. We now have science and philosophy at a level that didn't used to exist, so let's create a better society without God. And that's what this point is, is this is a, a moment in history that I believe was a defining moment when a famous German philosopher, you've maybe heard of Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, wrote, God is dead. And at the time, it was an idea in an elite university that sounded really neat to smart people. And Nietzsche and some of his peers, like Karl Marx, started to come up with new visions for a society that doesn't need God or churches or the Bible. And Marx got so excited about his, he wrote a whole, a whole system called Marxism, the foundations of communism, and it started as ideas in the university. But as more and more of the professors started to believe this, they started to train the culture shapers, the teachers, the lawmakers, the artists. And so you got a trickle down from the university where the smartest people and now all the shapers of culture believe we don't need God anymore. That Bible stuff's outdated. We can do better. And so from the time of Nietzsche, about 50-some years pass, and this trickles down from the intelligentsia to Main Street. And now you've got normal people in the Boy Scouts of Germany learning, we don't need God to make a better society, we can do it on our own, and learning these lies like the Jewish people are our enemy. Here's a picture of Adolf Hitler next to a statue of Friedrich Nietzsche. And to me, it's a symbolic image that shows here's what a largely Christian nation, when it turns away from the truth standard and says, we can do better without God, here's where it can end. And Germany is not the only case study in how terrible society becomes when it has the science and technology and power that came about from Christian study, but then throws away Christianity. Because it didn't just happen in Germany. Last week, we learned about the power of ideology. What is that? Your ideology is the set, the lens of ideas through which you view reality. We all have one. And Satan, who came into the world to kill and steal and destroy, primarily kills and destroys people through ideas. And Satan loves to get a whole society or group of people to adopt a lens of reality that says we don't need God or the Bible. It happened in Germany, and the ends were were the, some of the worst industrial scale killing and genocide in all of human history with the Holocaust. But Germany wasn't the only nation to adopt this idea from the German thinkers in the 1800s that we don't need God. In fact, a little further east in a giant nation called Russia at the time, there was a young academic who also came across the writings of Nietzsche and his friend Karl Marx, and this young academic started to think, what if Russia, which at the time was known as the Holy Rus, Holy Russia, uh, land of a thousand domes or steeples, Eastern Orthodox Christianity was the prevailing cultural center in Russia, a little different flavor of Christianity, but still Christianity. And this young academic thought, let's make a new society in Russia, let's have a revolution, get rid of the churches, Get rid of all the Jesus and Christianity stuff. Let's outlaw that stuff, make a new and better society without it. 
This young academic had a really long, hard to pronounce name. He knew if he was gonna get famous and make a change in the world, he had to shorten it, so he shortened it to Lenin. And Lenin and his friend Stalin took the writings of another one of these German thinkers, and they, they launched about 100 years ago what was called the October Revolution in Russia, which was the beginning of the Soviet Union. Now, it should be just well-known history, but I'll declare it, that under the Soviet Union, tens of millions of people were killed. Freedom of speech completely disappeared. Freedom of religion completely disappeared. The largest scale tyranny and just stamping out of human rights in human history happened as a result of ideas that were embraced and spread across a nation. Here are two paintings that illustrate what happened in Russia. Here's a painting, famous uh, Russian artist, I won't bore you with the details, but he did this before the communist Marxist revolution, and he was a symbolic painter, Nesterov, and here's his point. Here's all the different um, generations and social classes of Russia, pre the Soviet Union, this is the late 1800s, and what do they have in common? As an artist, he's saying, well, not perfectly, but they all look to Jesus. And there's clergy in the background and there's churches. Here's a painting, this was his last religious painting, because after the Soviet Union, churches got burned down, steeple, bell, steeple bells got melted down, clergy got sent to retraining camps called gulags in Siberia. But uh, Nesterov's last religious painting, you can see where Jesus was. Now we've got some industry, some science, some progress in the background, and this is the young ideal. This is Lenin and Stalin. And if you look closely at the painting, it might be hard to see from there, but this is Jesus' face, and it's painted, it's darkened, and the clergy are grieving, and the whole nation is gathering around this new ideal. Here's Tolstoy in the crowd. Anyhow, there you have a prophet here. You have a prophet who, like John the Baptist, is half naked, and he's warning the whole nation. He's saying, don't go down this path. Don't follow this new ideal. Don't leave Jesus and God. This was all done before the tens of millions of people died. Now, in Russia, which became the Soviet Union, there was a, a brilliant writer, and forgive me on the name, Solzhenitsyn, bear with me, okay? Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a, a genius writer who, like all the smart people in Russia eventually, if he didn't toe the line of the Soviet Union, he got sent to the gulag uh, similar to a concentration camp in Siberia where he nearly froze to death, but he lived. He became a Christian while he was there. And after the Soviet Union fell, Alexander Solzhenitsyn looked back at the 60 million people who died from famine and from outright murder by a fist of a government. And here's what he said looking back. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says this. If I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people. Translation, why did 60 million people die in my country? Alexander Solzhenitsyn says this, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. The crazy irony of history is that after the United States won World War II physically, its leading professors in universities started to adopt the same view of reality that Germany and Russia adopted before World War II. 
And this is documented in a book called The Soul of the American University, written by a guy named George Marsden. And the point is this. In this book, it's very academic. It might be boring. But the point is, he documents to the month and the day and the year when Yale University turned away from the Word of God. For hundreds of years, it believed this was the source of truth. There was a time when it turned away. He documents when Harvard turned away. He documents when Princeton, which was the most recent, turned away. And the subtitle of his book, From Protestant Establishment to Established Non-Belief. And the reality, whether we like it or not, is that now the smartest people in our society, for a number of decades now, have been taught the same thing that the smartest people in Germany and Russia were taught, that we don't need God to make society better, that actually Christians are the dangerous ones and we could do better, make a better society without them. Now, I'm not predicting exactly how it's gonna end, where it's gonna go for the United States. Hopefully, it takes a long time. Hopefully, there's uh, you know major movement of God and there's a revival and things change. But what we know from history is that when societies do this, it doesn't usually end well. And we can't predict exactly how it'll end. Here's Alan Bloom. Alan Bloom was a professor at Yale and at Cornell. He himself was not a Christian. Little P.S., he was born in Indianapolis, okay? So shout out for Alan Bloom, okay? Alan Bloom is not, not writing as a Christian. He lived through this era where the leading American universities that trickle down culture to the rest of the country adopted the German philosophers that led to World War II. He says, the popularization of German philosophy in the United States. Does that make sense? The popularization of that is of peculiar interest to me because I've watched it occur during my lifetime. And he writes this, he's now dead, but he says, I feel a little bit like someone who knew Napoleon when he was six. There was a time when Napoleon was six years old and playing on holiday, and no one knew that someday millions of people would die because of this little boy. And Alan Bloom, writing as a non-Christian in the Ivy League setting, says, I've seen my peers adopt the very ideas that led to death and destruction in other countries, and I, I kind of can't believe it's happening. Also writing as a non-Christian, Alan Bloom says this about the God's truth, the Bible, which was the center of American society until, until that turn. He writes this, in the United States, practically speaking, the Bible was the only common culture. Now, to people my age and younger, they're like, oh, someone's making that up. A pastor's making that up. No, it's, it's true. You can read books from the 1800s. If you could go back in time, almost every American home had a big old Bible in the middle of the living room. Even if the people didn't do what it said or read it, they had one, okay? And Alan Bloom writing says, that's what made this melting pot possible where people could come from Ireland or from Russia, from all around the world. And some were Catholic, some were Protestant, but the one thing they had in common was they at least had a respect for the Bible and for Jesus. They weren't perfect people, but they had that in common. Did you know that as recently as the 1940s, 98% of Americans identified as Christian? So, you know, some of our kids nowadays get taught, well, America was never a Christian nation. Well, it was a nation primarily of Christians, okay? But Alan Bloom says this, it, the Bible was the one thing that united simple and sophisticated, rich and poor, young and old, Without the book, the Bible, the idea of the order of the whole, a stable American melting pot society where people are all treated equally, is lost because that's where it came from. That's his assessment as a non-Christian academic. Without the pursuit of God's truth, we know we lose the roots 
that made freedom possible. So here's the real question, how can we respond? Very simply, we cannot control society. We can't control society, but we can control ourselves, and we can control our families, and we as a church can control our movement, which is a pretty significant movement, by the way. So don't despair. God has given us great responsibility with what we can control. And if you look on the back of your notes, you'll see these nine manifestos or things we strongly believe. And I just want to walk you. I'm going to spend about an hour on each of these. I want to walk you through them. It's a joke, okay? I do have an hour of content on each of these, but I won't do it today, okay? I want to just point out two of them to you. How do we respond to all this? Well, first, we decide that we will remain rooted to the Christian scriptures. No matter what happens in culture or in society, no matter what names we get called, no matter as, as the society turns away from God's word. And here's the thing with living in the Midwest, uh, what's happening on the coasts now, it might take a few years to get here, but I can tell you from living on the coasts, I can tell you from working in mainstream media that our kids and grandkids will grow up in an America where, barring a radical change of trajectory, they will be called names and considered bigots just for believing the word of God before they even open their mouth or do anything. And so we've got to decide right now when the, when the pressure comes, if, if someday churches lose their nonprofit status, if pressure comes, we've got to decide as a group of people, we will remain rooted to the word of God because it's his truth that leads to freedom and we won't give it up. And because we're committed to his truth, we'll always be loving. We'll pray for those who persecute us. We'll forgive our enemies. We'll love our enemies because we're committed to it but we're also gonna be unapologetic that this is the standard for what we do and believe, and that's the people we are. Second thing is the training of our young. I believe based on the rate of cultural change and the current of cultural force that if we're not very intentional about how we train our young people, that we'll lose them ideologically because they're getting a lens to view the world that says you don't need God or the Bible almost everywhere else they turn. So if we really want them to live those lives of freedom, we'll be intentional. And that's why, you know, even if you don't like um, how crazy my sermons are, maybe uh, be here or some other Bible-believing church to have your kids learning the truth of God's word. That's what we do in Kids City. That's what we do in student ministry. But in addition to that, and we'll be talking more about this in future months here, we want to help you as a church we want to help you be a family that trains your young people to know the word of God. Why? Because that's what leads to freedom. And we want them to live lives of freedom and prosperity. Well, let's close by just imagining for a moment our kids and our grandkids being rooted in the word of God and living lives of freedom. Freedom that keeps them away from vices and addiction. Freedom that hopefully will keep them from divorce, has the power to freedom that can set them on the path of their best life possible. And what we know is that apart from God's word, there is no true freedom. And so as the world around us perhaps gets darker because some people will be pursuing their idea of freedom without God and the consequences may be bad, we can be a lighthouse that shines brighter and brighter the hope that in Christ there is freedom. And so that's my prayer for us. Are you guys with me to be that kind of church? Amen. Thank you, guys. That means, means a lot.
Let's pray this together that we'll be a people of God's truth and his love and that we'll raise a generation who are warriors of grace and truth. Father, we love you. We thank you that through Christ, you've set us free. And Lord, we're a room full of people, of former alcoholics, former angry people, former all sorts of stuff. And Lord, you have set us free and you continue to. People like Dean, who was baptized last weekend, every week here, you're setting people free. And Father, as we look at world history, we can't understand it all and we can't predict the future, but what we know is that your, your truth sets people free. And we know that you have appointed us at this time in all of history to shine bright the light of Jesus and to declare to our neighbors there is a truth that sets the captives free. And Father, it's our prayer as a church that you would root us deeply in your word. Lord, we commit we'll stay true to your word because your word is your heart and we're true to you. And Lord, our desire is to raise up a generation who love their enemies, who pray for those who persecute them, a generation who are full of grace and who are unapologetically committed to your truth. Lord, will you use us in this place? Will you work by your Holy Spirit? Will you combine our resources and our abilities so that our kids and our grandkids will know the truth that sets people free? Lord, we wanna worship now by saying to you, God, we got a lot of thoughts, but we're just gonna push this down into our heart and say, Jesus, it's your kingdom that we're about. It's your truth that we're about. And so we worship by saying, with our will, with our free will, we choose you. We choose your truth and we want it for our families and for the society that we have here as a movement. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.